This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Genflone, and this is Speaker for the Living. We're going to talk about a tale of dictators and responsibility to protect and slaves and auctions and so many other things. Yeah, it's, I think, uh, again, this is something that's been in the news recently. Um, I, I think we're going through sort of a, a surge in human trafficking related cases actually getting press, which is exciting, but does come sort of a side where I think we're perpetually playing catch up, right? Uh, with trying to kind of bring you guys the most comprehensive human trafficking info that we have. Right. Uh, yeah, there, there's more news than we can keep up with. But this is a really big story. And this story is Libya. I remember, since I'm a child of the 80s, when Muammar Gaddafi was a thing. Where mm-hmm. he, he was in the news and they put his picture up there. And Reagan was talking about him. And, of course, you know, being good American wanted Gaddafi to lose because he was a bad person. And, yeah, he wasn't the greatest person. He's a dictator for about 40 years in Libya. Yeah, I think maybe that that's a good place to start, period, is just sort of... I, because I believe when we were teasing this, I even screwed up and at one point said Liberia as opposed to Libya. To be fair, CNN had footage of a slave auction in Libya where lives are auctioned for $400 was the title. And so we are going to talk about that, but we're going to give a lot of context for Libya first. Mm -hmm. So here we go. It's important to know that Libya is a major migration point, especially to Europe. It is in the middle of the continent of Africa on the top. And one of the things that happened under the Gaddafi regime was he controlled migrant flows. There was a notable deal with Italy where they gave him money and he kept migrants from going to Italy. So that was one of the functions that his regime served. And uh, they have an 1,100-mile coastline and people go across the uh, Mediterranean Sea to Italy, Greece, France. And one of the other things that's really important with Libya now is not only is Libya unstable, But five of the six countries that border Libya have been engulfed in war or in the midst of unrest. So it's just a real setting for a lot of people moving around and with no one regime to control migration. There's been lots of people migrating from Libya to Europe. Any other really important uh, context before we get into history? Well, I think what the... You've touched on it, but I'm just going to list off the countries that do surround Libya, just so that sort of people, I think, kind of get a better a better sense when we talk about the instability that surrounds it. Libya has, so as you mentioned, it's at the coast, so it's the Mediterranean Sea, but it, it's surrounded by Egypt, Sudan, Chad, Niger, Algeria, and Tanzania. And not many of those countries are going through a particularly stable part in this particular moment. These are all also, and I think we'll talk about this right now when we get into history, but these are all countries, and and Libya has a similar issue, that have pretty distinct, interesting ethnic groups and religious divide within country that then further complicates who's flowing 
across borders or feels the need that they have to flow across borders. It's a bit about the setting. Uh, going way back in history, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi led a coup against King Idris I in 1969, and he ruled through 2011. Notable in 2003 that Libya said they would abandon programs to develop weapons of mass destruction, and along with that was kind of an understanding that they wouldn't take out his regime. In February 2011, among the time of the Arab Spring, there were violent protests that broke out in Benghazi, the famous Benghazi, if you're an American, and spread. And so in uh, the next month, in March 2011, the UN Security Council authorized a no-fly zone over Libya and airstrikes to prevent her to protect civilians, and then NATO assumed command. And so you had a battle between Libyan rebels and the uh, better-armed pro-Gaddafi forces. And then in July, the uh, National Transitional Council was recognized as a legitimate government of Libya. And then in August 2011, Gaddafi went into hiding. And the African Union soon after recognized the transitional government as a legitimate government. And then October 20th, 2011, Colonel Gaddafi is captured and killed as rebel fighters take his, his hometown of Sirte. Now, the one part I haven't yet mentioned is the U.S. and other countries deciding that they are going to implement, along with NATO, responsibility to protect. So one of the things that I found interesting at Corbell as I studied uh, humanitarianism is... Not only do we not have wars, which a lot of you people already know that, that we don't declare wars anymore as the United States, but we don't even have military aggression actions because that's frowned on in the world community. So we have humanitarian operations. Mm-hmm. And th- there are good motives in there. But responsibility to protect the international community with the UN decided, uh, in in this case, that they... We're going to protect civilians who were under imminent threat in Libya. And so that was the initial reason to go in there. And under the framework of R2P, uh, each nation has the primary responsibility to protect its population from genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. But if a state like Libya fails in this responsibility or is the perpetrator itself, the responsibility then falls to the international community. At being in human rights, I will say I do believe in international law and that there is truth to this, that sometimes other nations have to take responsibility for something happening in another country, that there is a limit to sovereignty. Some of you probably don't agree with me, but I I also have questions sometimes about whether military action will improve things or not. And we have enough examples where people could argue maybe we should have gone into Syria more aggressively. We could argue maybe we shouldn't have gone into Libya. It's hard to know what the counterfactual is, which is what would have happened otherwise. Mm-hmm. Would it have been better or worse? So what we did here, we went in, and then as we went in, they decided to keep going and to take out Gaddafi. Well, no, and I think I, I might differ from you a little bit, Seth, in that I, I certainly am a human rights advocate, and I certainly sort of believe in, in the international system's ability to interfere. But I don't know if this is just that I recently, these last couple of months, I've just been sort of deflated, I think, or if I'm just getting, maybe maybe it's my Christmas 
cynic. I'm scrooging it up over here in Denver. But I, I found that a lot of the time that the international community doesn't, I think, do its due diligence and that UN action is often very specific the politics of involvement and the economic ramifications, I think, of involvement with certain countries or regimes is, at least I think kind of cynically, I think is taken a little bit more seriously than the human rights positions Mm -hmm. that I think should be reflected. I mean, I'm not telling you anything new, but just so people out there, if you're a little bit more cynical, I haven't gone full, like I think the government's a born identity sort of thing, but I'm slowly sliding and uh, and uh, watching the Matrix and like posting on an online forum. I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm getting a little weird out here. But counterfactuals yeah. about sort of whether or not the U.S. or the international community at large, as often I guess depicted by U.S. involvement, should be involved or not. I think Seth, what you made clear is, well, we were. So now, sort of, what what's the reality on the ground? Right, and we're not uninvolved. We the UN or other Western organizations have been involved with Libya consistently. They've been involved with Syria consistently. It's a matter of what is the nature of that involvement. And one of the challenges with taking down dictatorial regimes, which I like seeing dictators no longer in power. Oh, yeah, I I am all for that. I I fully endorse that. But They're never nice dictators, are they? We never get a benevolent one. Yeah. No. And dictators create patronage networks, so they pay off people and they use nepotism, which is getting relatives in. Mm-hmm. And what happened, like what happened in the Democratic Republic of the Congo is you had Mobutu going back like a decade or so, who had so undercut his military and his government in order to stay in power that when they faced a threat from other forces, Rwanda and such, his government didn't have the capacity to deal with it. So when dictators do not create strong civil societies that are resilient, and so once they're taken out, it can create chaos. And so that that's the challenge of places like Libya is even though the UN's been involved and even though in you know the following year in July 2012 after all of this they had their first free election and they had a transitional government but then in September 2012, there was the Benghazi incident where a U.S. ambassador and three other Americans were killed by Islamist militants. Very famous in the United States because of Hillary Clinton was overseeing the State Department at the time. And I will say, Hillary Clinton, being more of a hawk, really pushed for going into Libya, whereas Obama was more reticent about getting involved in quagmires in other countries. A couple years later, there's a lot of unrest and multiple warlords, Islamist, and most of the country is Sunni Muslim. And it just continued to be chaotic with the governments there. And and you had the UN Secretary General there in October 2014, and the talks broke down, and you have like three factions vying for government. And that pretty much is still happening as of 2016 and to now. So it's been very chaotic. Mm-hmm. And, and that's giving a really quick overview. Yeah, and as I, I touched on, again, while it is primarily, I think it's something like 92% mm-hmm. uh, identify as being Sunni Muslim, but there are about 140 tribes and clans within Libya who consider themselves, they, they might have similar religious 
leanings, but consider themselves like firmly differently um, from other Libyans ethnically and from other tribes or sort of clans. This is sort of somewhat involved from sort of the history of the sort of Berber nomads within Libya, but you also have sort of Turkish minority presence um, and then sort of other Berber uh, ethnic minorities that don't align themselves with any one particular family or clan. And then there are some sort of ethnically Italian settlers that had been there um, prior to Libya's independence and then who came back um, under Gaddafi. So you do sort of have uh, an interesting sort of mix of people ethnically. And then also, too, which is what we're going to talk about also part of this in a second, is roughly 12% of Libya's population is immigrant labor. And that's official migrant labor, most of which are Egyptians, Sudanese, and Palestinians. So that's the official number. But IOM records um, and consular records in 2009 reveal that there were Tanzanians, Moroccans, Bangladeshis, Indians, Pakistanis, Filipinos, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, Thai, and Greek people in country as well, all working as migrants, whether legally or no. That's not 100% sure. We're going to, I think, come back to this a lot or at least I know I am, Seth, with sort of the things that I pulled, particularly that I thought were super interesting about this case, is that getting very firm documentation from the last probably five or six years on things non-related to state security that are related to Libya is kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. As as usual, I think we, we see this happen a lot. And already we've talked about this. I can't even count how many times the number of you know, trying to hunt down human trafficking statistics that are valid and have clear methodologies and like they actually kind of are, okay, well, here's where we got this info. That's difficult. You add in when a country is going through a mass period of instability that does include, you know, like actually fighting in the streets. What people tend to be focusing on is then how do we focus on nonviolent civil resistance? How do we track migrants in and out of the country that may be participating in crime or war, you don't really get a lot of sort of human rights focused info that is specific to human trafficking. And to go with some more estimates to build on what JJ was saying, IOM, the International Organization for Migration, has identified and located 348,000 internally displaced persons. Those are people from Libya who are displaced. Okay, so that's one stat. And then from a RAND article, there are an estimated 700,000 to 1 million migrants trapped in Libya. This is as of an article from September, and this is since 2014. And then over 600,000 migrants have crossed from Libya to Italy since 2014. Now, one of the things that I thought would be helpful, and part of it was uh, I saw an article that said, there's slave markets in Libya. Thanks, Hillary Clinton. Man, we missed our Thanks Hillary episode. Yeah, so let's, but hey, we went in there and, you know, there's lots of chaos long down the road. However, that's a a disingenuous headline. It is quite wrong to blame slavery in Libya on Hillary Clinton because they have an atrocious track record of trafficking that goes back well before 2011. 
So just to pick out a few highlights of the TIP reports, the uh, Trafficking in Persons reports published by the State Department, over which Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. So she would have accessed all this information. Prior to the Arab Spring, this is from the 2011 report, which reports mostly on the prior year, Libya is a destination and transit country for men and women from sub-Saharan Africa and Asia subjected to forced labor and forced prostitution. Migrants typically seek employment in Libya as laborers and domestic workers or transit Libya en route to Europe. Although precise figures are unavailable, there were an estimated 1.5 to 2 million foreigners in Libya at the end of 2010. It also said they do not fully comply with the minimum standards for the elimination of trafficking and that Libya is placed on the Tier 2 watch list for a sixth consecutive year. They're not supposed to be on for six years, so they got quite a few official deferments from the State Department. Their law enforcement at the time for it was terrible. Their laws aren't good. Their victim identification wasn't good. So when they had a very controlling state, they were good at keeping migrants, not all, but lots, from getting to Europe. But otherwise, it was pretty miserable. Now, following 2011, this is from the 2012 report, some militia-controlled detention centers have begun to sell detained migrants into conditions of forced labor. That continued. Then the 2013 report, private employers continued to recruit migrants in detention centers into conditions of forced labor on farms or construction sites. When the work is completed or the employers no longer require the migrants' labor, employers return the migrants to detention. All the reports after that got more and more vague because without much of a government, it's hard to get statistics. All that to say, Libya had a lot of trafficking to begin with. No, that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, obviously, we're going to link to the original video that CNN and, and a variety of other news sources authenticated and then yeah. All right, so y'all y'all can see it. But I think I think Seth, as you just articulated very well, particularly with again, everybody always check out the tip report if you can. Mm-hmm. It's not the best, but it's the only thing we got. Um, is that certainly migrant exploitation in the region and exploitation of refugees is in no way a new thing. I, I think what really got mm-hmm. people was just one is that it was a video. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we kind of talked about this a little bit when we talked about sort of the dark net, but it's still pretty rare for us to actual ha- to actually have videos of the act of buying and selling to take place, right? Like we have lots of videos of people, I think, in exploitation, you know, sort of working at a construction site or working in a, in a factory or a farm. We see unfortunately like a lot of videos of of children and adults within the sex trade on unwillingly um in case of the um, adults children can't consent and then of course we see you know the aftermath we see the court cases we see you know the news stories about you know trying to get victim services but we don't really see the beginning portion i think depicted uh in a non-narrative way which is to say there have certainly been movies on human trafficking and things like that uh, lila forever is one that if you really just want to cry and be sad, but nevertheless is very informative and good that does um, the, ch- the the child sex trade uh, because she's not of age. Um, but we so rarely, I think, we get factual depiction of the buying and selling part that I think it shocked a lot of people, particularly because it was so very similar to sort of like what we can picture antebellum slave markets to be like. It is, but... It's at least slightly encouraging that these were in the dark, which is one big difference between antebellum slave markets and today. 
uh-huh. is antebellum slave markets were out in the open in broad daylight, and at least they have to go underground. But it's never, it's going to be disturbing. It's disturbing to see it. And even, you know, to note, we saw it now. IOM reported on this in April. The international community has known if they wanted to look that there were slave markets in Libya, at least since April. But now we have video footage. So what what say you about the slave markets? (laughs) All right. So here's here's sort of the background. Again, this is interesting in that it's a slave market. I think a lot of people who work in trafficking, we'd heard that markets existed, but I, I thought at least, or I had kind of gotten the impression that they were primarily one-on-one thing. So that be, because trafficking often works like a criminal enterprise, that it was more of, you know, a trafficker would contact another trafficker and say, okay, like this is, these are the people I have. Are you interested? Give me money. We move on. Right? Or that as we talked about in our dark white episode that that maybe there is some buying and selling happening via the internet or via maybe private online groups so this is interesting to me that it's actually a physical presence there uh and the fact that it's happening basically in what looks like like a conference room and that the the way, and I mean, obviously, all of you can watch the video, but the way in which people are described is, again, very similar to antebellum slavery, and that we have people being described as, like, does anyone need a digger? This man can dig. He's strong. He's a man. This is his age, you know. However, maybe reducing the novelty a little bit is that we did have reports from migrant groups or sort of refugee aid organizations that said this sort of level of exploitation had been happening in Libya for years, for years, in terms of just sort of if you work, we'll keep you from getting deported. And I think that's an important issue we need to talk about. So here, here's the deal. As Seth mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, Libya is a transit country for a lot of people, either people who are refugees or people who are migrants. In particular, this one-time article I'm citing says that for the last four years in a row, over 3,000 refugees have died while attempting the journey. And that's an IOM data point. So... And it's very similar from what we saw in the Syrian case is that, you know, boats come over that are vastly overloaded and tend to tend to crash. So you get anywhere, estimates vary, but you get anywhere from 40,000 to 1 million people who are bottled up in Libya. And Libya already is struggling, so they start just basically factoring people into detention centers. Not refugee centers, but detention centers. Those detention centers, centers are, according to basically the UN and the IOM, a hellscape. That there's incredible amounts of physical violence, rape, murder, robbery. That the the centers have little to no food, little to no sanitation. That these people are basically just put in in a prison camp to to get rid of them and and to die. So, what then happens to people who are incredibly incredibly uh, vulnerable who are like sleeping five to a mattress in basically a basement with no running water or electricity and in, in, in Libya who are being held there physically they can't leave they can't go home they can't stay here they can't go anywhere so what happens then is people will come 
to these detention centers or will stop people who've recently been picked up and know they're going to these detention centers, which it's well known within the migrant community that these are hellscapes and say, Hey, we can get you out of going or out of keeping you here. If you work for us for a certain number of years, which is, I mean, basically says what I would call like the, the, the standard model of debt bondage, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where there's leverage and where they don't, they're trying to make it in country and uh, they're, they're also a little bit afraid. And so you just kind of go with it. Exactly. So then what happens is that these, and it's primarily men from everything that I've, I've seen, I'm guessing just primarily because the, the vast majority I'm guessing of migrants and refugees, there's a, there's a trend for, for the men to go first with the idea that they'll have enough remittances to send home to their families, to bring people over in a safer way it's also just that young men tend to tend to be able to travel a little bit more easier because they're typically not responsible for sort of care of the elderly and children. So we got mostly men, uh, young men, children sometimes, but mostly men. So coming into country, they get picked up. So there's definitely got to be like a little bit of, of collusion, right, between some people in law enforcement and these individuals who are who are doing the selling uh, because people are picked up either at the detention center or on route and they're told hey you come work for us we can keep you in country now whether or not these migrants or refugees know that what they're doing is illegal i.e that they don't know that they're going to have a legal visa to stay in country or they know that they're not going to get it paid or not that's not entirely clear we haven't been able to find any interviews or at least i wasn't able to find any interviews or ethnographies with migrants or refugees in this situation in Libya that detail sort of their experience or where they came from, right? But it seems to me, just based on other narratives we've read from other people in trafficking, I would go ahead and throw out that probably they're they're just told, we have a way to keep you in country, you have to come work for us for a number of years, though, to pay it off. So then what happens is smugglers then so these either these smugglers or or these traffickers sell these people out as a, as either day laborers or as sort of in-house slaves to to pay back the debt but as we've i think articulated a number of podcasts you're never going to pay that debt back the the debt is not a static number you are constantly being charged that money is not coming back at all um, so eventually what happens is, again, we've articulated another podcast. We've talked about sort of how labor trafficking works in general is that they want to get rid of these guys. So if you have someone who's a day laborer, you've got to transport them there every single day, right? You've got to keep physical control of them. And that's difficult, especially if it's a grown adult male. You've got to drive back and forth. Um, at a certain point, you do need to provide some food if you intend on having them for, for a long-term worker. Like, it's a lot of sort of cold, hard realities about when when you are a slaver, this is how this works. So what then happens is, is that eventually people move into the market of, well, I'm just going to permanently sell someone away from me. So no longer are, are they a slave that I'm sort of renting out for my benefit. I'm just going to get a net benefit of selling them. And, and that's what we see in the CNN video where we see people being auctioned off for about roughly $400 USD just to get sort of rid of the individual and, and make a profit. The other issue here too, I mean, this happens in all human trafficking cases to, to a 
to different degrees. But again, like we don't know how many people are in country. We don't know where people are coming from. People may not have papers. In some cases, we're dealing with with people who would be defined in the in the international community as stateless. So, so any sort of rescue model for these people is very, very difficult. It's just, it's rough because again, you have people coming into a country looking for, for freedom, looking for a, a way to provide for themselves and their families. These are not people who've taken a journey lightly. They arrive on country, they're picked up by, by a government and that government ends up ultimately hurting them. Right. And when we say government, there's like three militias and then there's yeah. like 10 to 15 warlords stuff that's kind of hard for me to process having not been to a country like that it's like well, what does that look like well there's a lot of people vying for power and well and that's the other thing too when i say that in terms of tracking people mm-hmm. it's so very difficult i think hunting hunting down not only what detention centers people are kept people are kept in but who picked them up? Where are their papers? Where is the record of these people? Who is the one selling them? Who, who is selling it? Up? Is is that when you the minute you have a country in crisis, that just sort of makes the things that are already difficult in human trafficking like a thousand times harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am just really excited, though. I mean, excited is perhaps it, it makes it come across like I'm happy about this, but but as you said, that at least that one videos have come out about it. Which this, as as we mentioned before, this has been happening in Libya for a long time. I'm glad it's finally getting attention. Mm-hmm. And I'm also really, really excited to say that when when you have sort of mass news organizations going in to to do research, like you and I are stuck in Denver because we are broke people for the most part. You know, we can't go to Libya to to conduct a a hunt but it is kind of i anytime something gets national attention or international attention rather and the the un finally gets sort of like video that they can use in their campaignings or that they can use to try and get aid money i'm i'm happy about that although on the topic of awareness and news some <laughs> libyan media has said that these cnn videos are fake news and that was right after Donald Trump went on a rant about fake news. Yeah. You know, I probably obvious I'm not a Trump supporter, but I, I I think it's good to be as respectful as possible to our leaders Mm. and to the people we don't like. And uh, I go back to, I, I I can uh, go back to GK Chesterton, a British journalist and, and a Catholic Christian. And I love the way that he went after George Bernard Shaw, who was a socialist and he was an author and they went, they went at each other, and he's, he'd be like, Shaw is one of the like smartest and most consistent people I know, and he's also wrong. <laughs> like, that's just awesome. But I am disgusted with the way our president mocks news organizations. I, I mm-hmm. think it's bad for democracy. I'm opposed to it, and it makes me angry. And I also have seen how dictators like uh, Hun Sen have used Trump's rants and where they can also rail against Western news because why not? The president of the United States does. And with something like trafficking, where there are sometimes 
instances of fake information or sensational information. For instance, there have been daylight photos going around on Facebook of slave markets, except none of them are these particular slave markets. And I, I have a link to the Snope article about that. And if you want to see which one I'm specifically talking about, you can go to our show notes or our website and click on that link. That isn't helpful. And yeah. our president blasting CNN and you know almost everything except for Fox, that that's not helpful. And so calling it out right now. This is a plausible story based on Libya's history. It was already identified in April. So we have every reason to believe that these videos are legitimate. Which it is a shame, but again, I think we've hit a, we've hit a point now at least where we, we don't go. The Libyan gov- well, government, in quotes, as it stands, may have made comments about it being fake news, but I don't think the international community has, has taken it as such. So having said that, reiterate again that uh, modern slavery is illegal. So these slave markets are illegal. And slavery, because it's illegal, does not have the force of law behind it like antebellum slavery did in the United States. So when they buy a person and enslave them, they do not legally own them as property, although they, they may treat them like property. And that's a difference. And that's also why if you watch the CNN videos, you talk about people who were enslaved for a period of time, which is also the way it tends to work with modern slavery, is people are not enslaved as property their entire lives, thankfully. Now, sometimes that means they're treated worse, and sometimes they're worked to death, which is the downside of that. But those, those are distinctions that are important to note. Now that we've gone to such a happy place, I'm being sarcastic, <laughs> what is the international community doing? Well, people are noticing and they're complaining on Facebook. I mean, they, we do that all the time anyway, but it's, awareness is, is helpful. And uh, French President Emmanuel Macron has announced that the EU and African Union will do some military and policing action. And they also, uh, along with the EU, pledged a Marshall Plan for Africa worth 44 billion euro. Now, what does that actually mean? I mean, Marshall Plan worked for Europe for a lot of very specific reasons, but if they're going to throw money and potentially help the situation, I, I can at least be hopeful that they'll do that in a good way. Because part of this is an issue of good governance and good economics. If you have stable governments, if you have jobs, then you have less migration and less slavery in the modern world. So that's one thing to keep an eye on and hope that uh, there are some positives from that action. Any other end notes, JJ? That's about it. Although I would say that if you are someone who's out there and you're particularly interested in uh, working with or like supporting a sort of Libyan NGO or something, I would say this is an uncomfortable moment, but you should hold off because a number of them have actually stopped uh, working in Libya proper because of sort of the, the mounting instability in the region. However, I would recommend that you find a local refugee or migrant organization and, and help 
via that way, sort of within your own community. Sometimes we get comments from people who, you know, y'all are great. You're listening to your human trafficking podcast in your spare time, right? You're nice people. You want to help. But in this case, sending sending aid in country, I think, is is perhaps not the best method to, to do so. I would focus on sort of local country-based options. And if you have a particular tie or interest in a one of one of the, the sending countries, for example, South Sudan, Bangladesh, Thailand, etc., you know, finding an NGO that maybe serves migrants of that area for, for safety purposes. But I would say in terms of sending directly to NGOs working in Libya right now, there there are few and most of them, I think, are, are either pulling out or on the verge of pulling out. All right. That was Libya. Thanks for listening. Woo! All right. Bye, everyone. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.